From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. If you're old enough to remember a time before Smash Burger and Shake Shack and Five Guys and all the other burger chains that are hot today, you probably ate at an Embers. Started in Minneapolis in the 1950s by Henry Crystal and Carl Bernberg, the restaurant was known for its signature Emberger and later for its blockbuster breakfast. At its peak, there were more than 80 Embers restaurants around the Midwest. But when Henry's son, David Crystal, was appointed CEO in 1997, things were not awesome at Embers. In steering the company through crisis and trying to avoid bankruptcy, David hit upon a marketing strategy that ended up becoming a whole new business, Augeo, a loyalty and digital marketing company, which now offers incentive and debit card membership programs in more than 50 countries. Last year, they spun off a fintech loyalty division for $140 million, and now they're growing again. It's a long way from serving bacon and eggs, and it's the ultimate example of how success sometimes evolves out of failure. I'm really excited to have David here to share his insights and his fairly unlikely story. David, thanks for joining us Thank you today. for having me. Um, it's such a fun and kind of funny story. And I mean, let's begin with the fact that you never even intended to go into your father's business. No, that's exactly right. I, I So I grew up in St. Paul. Uh, went to Sibley High School in West St. Paul and went to the University of Minnesota undergrad before I headed out west for law school. And um, as I was growing up, through high school and through college, I worked in the restaurants, busing, waiting tables, um, you know, originally in West St. Paul, over here in St. Paul in the Midway area, uh, the University of Minnesota, there was a restaurant there. Um, and, but I was never planning to go in on the corporate side. Okay. Uh, what, do, what do you remember from your childhood? I mean, was it just assumed that you would work in the restaurants? What do you remember about your, your father? I mean, were you proud that, I mean, this was your dad's company? I mean, it's just like it's an amazing story. So my dad and his partners, you, as you've referenced, went to Central High School together, had literally no money. And they both, you know, they would both say they worked probably from the age of two, literally. Okay. You know, it's one of those stories. And, uh, but they went into the Navy. Got out of the Navy in the mid-50s, 56, and they spent a summer barbecuing and cooking and searching for someone to lend them enough money to get started. And they found someone who lent them $15,000. They opened up a restaurant on Lake Street in Minneapolis. They knew they wanted to be in the restaurant They business. knew they wanted to be, and they developed all these recipes. And to your point about the the, bur- the Emberger is still to this day the best burger ever. And by the way, I need to say that, but I do believe it. <laughs> And um, but that's how they started. And then they paid off that debt within a matter of months and they grew organically for many years. And they were an amazingly hot company and brand in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s when I was working in the restaurants. Where was the very first Embers? So the very first Embers was near Lake, where Lake Street and Hiawatha is today. And and what made it so hot? What 
Well, the, first of all, everything was from scratch. The pancakes, unbelievable. It's a, like a Swedish pancake recipe. Um, all, while others evolved and started to do frozen this or bring in pre-prepared items, Embers continued to make things from scratch, from the coffee cakes to the hand-patted burgers versus frozen burgers. They claimed to be, and I believe it, the first, believe it or not, to put bacon and cheese on a hamburger. And they called it the Emberger Royal because the bacon and cheese reminded them of a crown. Huh. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a great, and they, you know, they did in those days. They did some very innovative things for those of us around at the, in those in that era. You would drive through town and see billboards upside down, and the reason they turned them upside down is just so people would notice them. But, oh know, my gosh! <laughs> lots of those kinds of that's very things. funny, yeah. and and so they continued to open more locations, all in Minnesota. They opened. It was in the five state area, so Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, and they really grew uh, through the late 70s. In the beginning and the early 80s, they stopped growing. It was still a very successful, very healthy company. But what happened uh, in the in the 80s, the competition began to creep in for during all day, you know, around all day parts. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Originally, the TGI Friday and those, those types of restaurants came into market um, that made Dinner time, more interesting, more fun, televisions, bars, the whole thing. And then the fast fooders became more relevant over the lunch segment. Then eventually with the the proliferation of coffee shops and bagel places, the the kind of the social networking and meetings began to happen in coffee shops more than they did at Embers-type restaurants. So there's still a place for 24-7 operations and family-style restaurants, but it became very different by the mid to late 90s. And that's when you were called in. That's so we were at the time. I, um, I so I have a law degree from Stanford, and I, I was practicing uh, at a wonderful firm here in town, still around called Winthrop and Weinstein. We still use them today, actually. <laughs> and um, uh, and but, but but by the late seventies, um, the company was losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. So there was a, a, a genuine threat of bankruptcy. Um, we put a deal by to the get, late seventies. By the late nine. I'm sorry, oh. I, I didn't mean seventies. By okay. the late nineties. Okay. By the late nineties. So I. I went back into the business in um, late 1997. We put a deal together um, to buy out my dad's partner's family. Uh, the relationship was good at the time, but there were, you know, they, there was kind of. Um, lack of alignment as to where to take the business. So we began a process in the late seventies, in the late nineties, as to <laughs> did it again, as to where to take the company. And did the, your dad ask you to to come help? He. he um, not in so many words. My dad was, I mean, he, he actually, it's, he will have died 12 years ago uh, mm-hmm. this year. Um, he was an extraordinary human being in, in literally every respect. And just moving off of Father's Day, which was yesterday, um, we should all think that about our fathers, but I'm truly blessed um, in that he always put his children first. So we, we had conversation after conversation over not just a number of months, but a number of years. And eventually I did feel both an obligation but more importantly, a desire to go back in and see if we could figure it out. I mean, it was in total crisis mode because, as I shared, 
um, the the whole market segment was moving away from the the, the, the family style operation, and the business itself, a twenty four seven operation, really in, asset intensive in terms of equipment, food inventory, and everything. I mean, it was just it was very very complicated, and the labor market made it tough too. So before you arrived at Embers in the late nineties, was your dad closing locations, or how how was he dealing with the? He there were, there were a number of what I would call incremental sorts of tactics that were being deployed to try to address the shrinkage both in revenue and the expense creep. Um, but there, there wasn't anything of significance in my mind. They had tested some new menu ideas like most restaurants will do, tested op- being open for different hours, uh, maybe closing at night and reopening in the morning, um, testing different management and culture strategies. But the fact is nothing was really working. And it's very difficult to overcome it as we've seen Denny's and Perkins and others move in and out of bankruptcy over the years. It's a very, very tough segment. So what made you think you were going to be able to fix it? Well, probably um, a combination of youth and ignorance. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we began um, – so, so when I went back in, I told my dad, I said, Dad, if, if we're going to do this, there could probably only be one leader. And as much as he's loved and we would be business partners, um, it, would, it, would have to prob- it would have to be me for no other choice than we need to dramatically change course. And you have brothers that are in the business? I have. Um, we're, we're to the, as we fast forward to today in Algeo, which we'll come to in a moment, um, we, I do have two brothers in the business. Um, we have, uh, but we're not family owned per se. I mean, we have a number of outside investors. But they were not there when you joined your father? Correct. Okay. One joined and- soon thereafter and another came in a number of years later. But you were the one who was crazy enough to think you could go fix this crisis. <laughs> yes. And to this day, I think it's still pretty crazy. Are you the oldest? I, I have an older sister. Oh. Uh, so she and she lives in Chicago. And then I have two younger brothers and a younger sister. Okay. So there's five of us total. Okay. So you arrive. Things are not good. What do you do? So we, we well, we, you know, in those days, Motorola had a saying. It, it said something like, we celebrate noble failure. And the fact is we needed to take risk, a lot of risk, in a lot of different ways to begin to kind of massively test ideas, strategies, and tactics to see what would work. So we actually, um, that first year I was in, I was, we had to kind of blow up culture because we had all, you know, when you're not growing for what had been almost 20 years, meaning building new restaurants, um, you develop a culture of sort of um, bad habits, right? Mm. For lack of a better, there were some wonderful people and some really good habits. But among those wonderful people and good habits, there were some bad habits. So we had to blow up those bad habits, and we had to, you know, change what had been this downward spiraling momentum. Uh, so the way to do it, there's a number of different ways to do it. But one of those ways was just to literally, you know, in a very sort of shocking way, almost stunning way, um, uh, blow up the current culture. And so we asked our managers. We asked a number of different folks to begin to test things in stores, some of which were their own ideas, some of which were ours, to, to see what would stick and what might work. And in fact, at the end of that first year, we asked people – well, during that first year, we asked people to keep track of all the really good ideas that failed. Mm-hmm. And we had a bowling party at the end of that first year. I think we had maybe 2,500 employees at the time. Maybe half came to this party where we celebrated 
the really good ideas that failed. <laughs> Just because what it does, it sends a message that it's okay to take risk. It's okay that to change some habits that needed to be changed. Sure. And so we did a number of those kinds of things in that first year. My dad would say at the end of the first, at the end of my of that first year, David, I made more. You made more mistakes than I made decisions in my previous forty. <laughs> but that that was the only way to do it. But you were able to get people. You were able to kind of shake things up we and get to, people thinking. In, in a different way, and that was kind of the key. That was the key. That was the key. And, 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 and to this day, I firmly believe that culture eats strategy for lunch. I think there's a saying around mm-hmm. that. Uh, and um, if you don't have the right culture, there's very little that teams can do to be, to be really excellent. But, but realistically, you know, you, you ha- I'm sure you had a lot of really longstanding relationships and important people. But, I mean, was there some degree of, like, we need to bring in some new people? Absolutely. Need- I mean, it's, it's a common – I mean, you want to stay very loyal and very true to the people that got you that far. But at the end of the day, if literally you're going to lose everything and these same people are going to be out of a job, there's some really hard decisions that need to be made. And it, and it, it can be gut-riching at times. You try to stay as loyal as you can for as long as you can, and you actually ask people to change. You tell the message at the t- among the many messages at the time, there were some key ones, one of which was as long as, bo- as, long as you have both, I forget exactly how we set up, but both feet on the bus, right? Um, not one foot in and one foot out, but both feet in it, whether it takes you a day to get there or a year to get there, we don't really care as long as you're all in. And for the people that weren't all in, they're generally the ones that couldn't make the cut. And then eventually, as we could only do so much to influence the performance of the operation, we had to to explore other strategies, which ultimately led us to Algeo. Because we, 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 we were losing well north of a half a million dollars a month. So when you're at that level of loss, you can only survive so long. It's one thing to start at zero and, and have a hard time making money. It's another thing to start at like negative. Like negative, you're, right. you, you walk into a situation where you're already bleeding money. That's that correct. does not sound fun. Do, do you just like a challenge? I, I love a challenge. And to this day, I mean, we take new challenges on, hopefully not quite that um, extreme. I do love a challenge, but I think we also had no choice, right? So when you literally, when you're in crisis mode and you have no choice, to take the challenge on is kind of an easy decision, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Even for my career, you'd asked the question earlier, did your dad ask you to come back in? He didn't didn't formally ask me to come back in, but I think it was something I felt an obligation to do. And he clearly wanted me to, and I love working with him, and I'd always loved working with him. So from that standpoint, it was really wonderful. Was it about his legacy or all of the people who worked for him? Like, like what was, when you say we had no choice, I mean... We had no choice because of the financial condition of the, of the business. So it, it was it was inevitably going to go under unless we could figure out a way to shift course. Sure. So as we, as we got involved, we were able to actually raise our revenues in the restaurant business by over 20% that first year, which is pretty extraordinary for that kind of a brand, Yeah, uh, and cut our costs. And the net result of all of that was we were able to cut our burn, which was over half a million dollars a month, to maybe around $300,000 a month. So what worked? You talked about all of the good ideas that failed. Obviously, had a couple ideas in well, there that Well, you know, worked. if you remember, there was a, I think our, 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 we made some improvements in terms of the menu and the food, right? Um, we made significant operating improvements in terms of service and taking care of customers. Um, the thing that um, also made a significant difference is we did, if you remember, my dad and I did TV commercials back in those days. So we looked at the cost of 
doing more what more you know larger companies might do in terms of making a television spot. We said, well, that's just too expensive for us. Mm-hmm. So my dad and I said, well, you know, we, and, and remember the Menards guy in those days making mm-hmm. TV commercials, and 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 there are a few others like that. So we began to shoot three spots, three TV commercials in a day to save budget. And those commercials, which really focused on food, had a big effect. And then we had a message along with the TV spots in the overall marketing strategy, which was this. If you don't love your food, we will buy it for you, guaranteed. So it's a, it's a bit vague, but basically we're telling people, you're going to love our food. And if you don't, we'll pick up the tab. And did that, you have a lot of people handing you their tab? We, we, it, this, is, this is the Midwest. So that was the big risk. But we didn't. People actually came in in droves, and they fell back in love with the food. Huh. But even then, it's still that segment was in such a tough place. You can only do so much to slow down what I would call kind of the burn or the bleed. So how quickly did you arrive at the idea of franchising? So as we were looking, to, um, as we were looking at the labor situation, Situation where you're asking general managers of restaurants to, you know, in 24 hour operations to spend a lot of their day there, mm-hmm. you can only pay them so much. So we thought about franchising a little bit differently than perhaps others did. And that is, um, at least in our situation, um, and we call it, they call it refranchising, where you take stores that you would own and you sell those stores to managers who could then become owners. Mm. And then they're a little less concerned about what their pay rate is and a lot more concerned about seeing their restaurant succeed. So the idea was if they owned the restaurants, the individual owned the restaurant, he or she could be more successful and therefore we would be more successful. So that's so we, we moved to franchising where we did it in two different ways. We took our own restaurants and refranchised them, meaning sold them to business owners. And then there were other really excellent locations across the Midwest, truck stops, travel centers, that sort of thing, that were a little old, a little deteriorated, but really well run and had great food, that when we could bring our branding in our recipes and our total formula in over the top, it would give them a better chance to compete. So how many of those still exist today? Very few, very few. I mean, there's in the Twins, in the Metro, there's one unbelievably well-run Ember's restaurants in uh, Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center. Um, and and that was one of our early refranchise locations to a guy named Joe Rickenbach. And his father and family had been a part of our family for many, many years in terms of part of the Ember's uh, system. Okay. And they do an unbelievable job if you haven't been to that restaurant. Little plug. Okay. <laughs> so the so the other, once a pitch man, always a pitch That's man. That's exactly right. right. So, so the others just sort of naturally, I mean. some Some, they they devolved, I guess, for lack of a better way. Some, many are still restaurants today. Um, others have transformed into, you know, they had great, great real estate, great locations. Like the unit in Uptown, as an example, is now a Chipotle. Hmm. Um, and so there was a number of, of um, uh, conversions from what had been Embers to other restaurants or just other um, other uses. So how do you look at this? Because on the one hand, you, you had some success. You came in and created some efficiencies. You had this sort of rebirth, but yet it, it just sort of naturally right. so, well, phased well, out. Well, as we were moving through that process, we ultimately concluded there's only so much we could do in the family sector. And we were putting our best foot forward. We were all in. We we believed to the core we were going to figure it out. So there, there are a couple of other things we did. And we so it, when you're losing that amount of money, you have to find ways to drive new revenue. So the, the idea that ultimately stuck was that, well, we have, we have these relationships 
in the, the food service industry. U.S. Foods was our big distributor at the time. Others included like Cisco and, and so forth. We had a big relationship with Pepsi. Um, and so we brought some ideas to, our, to these relationships, and we asked these relationships, in particular U.S. Foods, to test this idea with us around how – the idea in particular was how – we have all these wonderful resources that we've built over the years, whether it's, you know, expense – expense side relationships with credit card processors or payroll processors or trash haulers. We had wonderful menu design services and marketing services. Our our thinking was, what if we could package these up and bring them to independent restaurants across the country and help them to more effectively compete? Hmm. And that became, and the original name of what is today Algia was called Food Street. So we, we packaged a whole set of services up for independent restaurants to help them more effectively compete, and we brought that to market. And that became our very first solution um, in around 2000 or so. Solution in terms of keeping your keeping the people who worked for you for Embers employed and finding different ways to make money. Both, the yeah. Keeping some Embers employees worked in that part of the business. Then we, of course, we hired other expertise who we did that we didn't have within the restaurant company to help run that business. So you kind of got out of the mindset of we are a restaurant business and thought let's look at what talent we have, what what services Correct. we could provide. Correct. And other companies wanted these services from you. Correct. I mean, we so we built this wonderful solution for, and I have to be careful about the brands that I name in terms of our current clients, but they're still, our very first client is still a client today. We couldn't be more proud of that. Um, And we did something for one of the largest beverage companies in the world, similar, B2B. So their corporation and their, like their hospitality business or their food service business. Um, And uh, and, and along the way, again, the the name of the company is called Food Street. We got a call from uh, Kinko's. They never became a client, so I can talk about Kinko's. Long before, well, just before, anyway, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. But just before FedEx acquired Kinkos, we got a call from them. They said, you know, we understand you're doing some really wonderful things in the loyalty space for small business customers. And that was our only business at the time. This is 2002 or whatever it was. I don't recall the exact year. Um, and they said, could you come down to Dallas? They were based in Dallas and meet with us. And we had about three weeks to prepare for that meeting. We thought, if we go meet with Kinko's, and our name is Food Street, we need – that's not going to work. It's just going to confuse them, even if they love us and love our program. So we need to come up with another name. So we threw all these names up on a board. Of course, they were all taken. I have a law degree. So I think, well, let's come up with a Latin name. And it doesn't really matter because our name will always be behind the mask, so to speak, of our clients' programs. So the name we came up with was Augeo, A-U-G-E-O. Augeo in Latin means augment. And we the, the idea was we augment – uh, relationships between distinctive companies and their constituents, whether they're employees or customers and so forth. So that's pretty broad. Pretty broad. Um, you mentioned loyalty. What, what 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 kinds of things were you doing? Well, to fast forward to today, I mean, because it's it maybe easier to explain yeah. the company today than we can back. Yeah. What back the heck up. do you do? I I, I don't even know. So <laughs> it's, this has been really nice talking to you, Alice. <laughs> And that hamburger. No, yeah. No, so, t- so today, it's all these years later because it's been like 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And we've become one of the largest yeah, – forget size isn't as relevant as, as sort of impact. But I think that one of the more impactful, more prolific loyalty marketing firms um, both domestically and, and worldwide. 
Um, we're based here in Minnesota, but we have offices across the U.S. And as you mentioned earlier, we do business today in like 55 countries and 10 different languages. We have two primary plat in, in two two primary platforms. One of which is in fintech. So we had built we built this great business over the years. We actually sold the division for the first time last fall. It was public information, and we used the proceeds of that sale to reinvest in our core platforms to totally clean up our balance sheet and actually to buy back a bunch of shares. So we created liquidity for our shareholders, which was totally awesome. Okay, wait, you're moving really fast. Sorry. What you what was the division that you sold? What did so, that do? So in the so in the that was a that that division, for lack of a better characterization, did credit and debit card points programs. So the way you earn points and redeem points on your any credit card you carry in your wallet today or debit card, we were we were one of the fastest growing players in the US market. So we had we worked with well over a thousand different banks and credit unions. It was a hyper growth business for us. I'm still trying to get from serving burgers to points on credit cards. Yeah. How in the world did you so get there? It's 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 like a um, you know, there's an element, as I was thinking about this yesterday, um, it's a stunning story. In it that, really you know, is. But, but here's, here's kind of back to the embers piece of it and the transition to Algeo. When you're in, there, you think about successful entrepreneurs today, um, where their ideas begin. Some are really smart and have beautiful, wonderful, magnificent visions. Okay, that ain't me, right? <laughs> We were in total crisis mode, trying to figure out literally how to cash flow the business to avoid bankruptcy. So our first idea came from um, the restaurant business because we knew the business, we had relationships, and so we leveraged this kind of experience and asset base that we had to create what what was then our first business idea. And then um, we ended up to win a huge contract. So we, we, we won that first piece of business I mentioned in the food service space. Um, and then maybe four or five years later, won a huge contract with one of the leading home improvement retailers in the U.S. to do something with them on the pro-contractor side, B, B2B. And th- when we won that piece of business, it sort of elevated um, people's thinking of Auschwitz and how we think strategically about things. And when you say to do something, what what just in general terms were you doing? We were we were in that. It was still. I mean, our our, our very early years were were developing these enterprise wide loyalty solutions for large corporations and their small business customers. And this was be, this was around the time of kind of Amex Open, um, but it was before anyone else was really thinking about loyalty for small business to really bring small business into a, a tailored, customized kind of engagement solution. And you're talking about things that would engage the consumers where like the more you spend, you you are earning points that are redeemable or you're getting rewards. Well, that's uh, a combination of both. So the, the, so, so the original small business solutions were a combination of there could be some points elements to it, but it was more about value added services. What can we deliver to these small business uh, owners, originally independent restaurants, but then it broadened to, to, to more sectors, to make them more competitive, to help them be more profitable, to help them drive more traffic. Can you give one example? Um, well, so for for example, in the in the in the restaurant industry, we would we would 
aggregate a number of different services so that if you know restaurants, independent restaurants need to have a payroll solution, need to have they they pay credit card processing or debit card processing fees. They need pest control services. They would need linen services. They would need you know all those kinds of services they're paying for today. If we could deliver you know best in class solutions for them and help them save money at the same time, it's kind of a no brainer for them to use it. Same thing on the traffic generation side. Meaning independent restaurants want to find ways to drive more traffic. So whether it's in, in more contemporary means of sort of SEO and SEM strategies or what should be their digital strategy. Back in those days, it was a lot of menu design services. What kinds of things could we, what kinds of relationships did we have that could help them drive traffic in? So even though, you know, Embers was struggling, other companies were willing to go to you for this expertise and these well, services? Well, a combination of, well, not initially. Initially, <laughs> we were begging them to come to us, right? I mean, it, when you're when you're starting out with literally nothing and you didn't, and you, we didn't have any sort of reputation or any, any market awareness in the loyalty space, we had to go create it. So, you know, those early days, we would do anything to help others understand our thinking, our strategy. We, we had the privilege of working with some of the leading companies in the food service sector to help develop our, our strategy. Um, but that's how we got off the ground. And then again, back to kind of who we are today. So today we actually have a very large, we have a fintech platform, which is while we sold our credit card and debit card processing piece, we still have a piece that does cash back. So if you take your card in your any card in your wallet into one of our participating retailers, you might spend $100, get five, six, seven dollars back through that through that um, transaction. You that, run those programs. We for... run those programs for some of the leading banks, leading payment networks in the country. And I, I dare say that that business today for us is growing at almost a hundred percent clip. And I'm not in terms of revenue. It's it's hyper growth. Um, it's a really hot sector. It 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 is it amplifies the current relationship you might have in your with your car loyalty program. So if you have a US bank card, which we don't run a program for today, and you're earning points on that on that program, if you use the if you use your card, that same card in one of our merchants, you can still earn additional cash back. So it doesn't disrupt or distract from your current card program. It's additive to it. And that's why, I mean, today I think we have, by the end of this quarter, we'll have over 30 million cards live and we'll probably double that by this time next year. That's amazing. It's amazing. And it's 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 a it's super growth, super fast growth. So we have that business. And did you just stumble upon that no, business? No, we, we actually had, there, there, were, there were market leaders that were doing what the industry would call digital couponing, where you could use your card and effectively, through a more seamless process, receive a digital coupon by virtue of using your card. Mm -hmm. We looked at that, and that's probably a decade-old sort of happenstance. We looked at how the market was evolving and didn't like a couple of a couple of the the kind of the user experience aspects of what was evolving. So we won a piece of business, believe it or not, with Hawaiian Airlines years ago, began testing a different thesis around the cardholder experience that was more frictionless, that uh, was way more convenient for the cardholder. And as that took to life, uh, in recent years, we've seen it just really grow. So we originally had less than a half a million cards active. Then we won a big um, bank account, a bank 
unique opportunity that went up to maybe three million cards, and today we're just flying. It's and it's like rocket growth. It, I just saw for Father's Day. I saw my my daughters took me to see um, Rocket Man. So mm-hmm. rockets on my mind. So we, <laughs> so we have rocket growth. It's a good right reference. <laughs> um, so and that's only one piece. I mean, talk about a couple of other big areas. Right. For so we, so so we have we still have our our small business loyalty practice. Right. That's the same clients I referenced earlier are still clients today, which we're super proud of. Um, we have a very very large practice in the employee engagement sector. So you think of large corporations that put millions of dollars dollars of compensation behind very defined performance metrics. So so what the industry calls employee recognition and rewards, where you want to appreciate and recognize your employees regardless of where they are and how they're supporting the organization. So we we run these solutions worldwide for some of the leading telecom providers, one of the leading airlines, one of the leading accounting consultancy firms worldwide. It's a, it's a hyper-growth business for us as well. Um, and then we use that same platform a bit more now in health and wellness. And uh, we, we have the privilege of supporting some of the leading market research companies in the world uh, to, to uh, encourage people to take you know digital surveys and, and reward them and appreciate them at the back end of those surveys. So that's that whole sort of recognition and rewards platform is a whole nother area of growth for us. And then the third sort of our, part of our platform is in the is in the membership and benefit space. So imagine you're you work for an, a large employer and they want to give you, deliver for you everyday perks or discounts locally or maybe voluntary benefits. So we, we have a large insurances group. Um, that's that kind of work that we do. How many people work for Augio today that worked for Embers? Are there any? There are. There are. We're so proud of that. Actually, yes. I mean, the 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 woman who heads our whole finance function, which is a gigantic function now because we're in the hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, um, she started out with us in 1993, and <laughs> as she was putting herself through school and uh, moving through all these iterations with us um, in, in in landing to today, what is Augio? Uh, she's still with us today and runs literally one of the most important functions we have. Uh, the person, the woman who heads up our, our customer service group was one of our restaurant managers. Unbelievable. Um, we still, believe it or not, on Tuesday mornings here in, in our Minnesota office, we prepare Ember's pancakes. <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the gentlemen who actually ended up to be a franchise owner, he was at one point a regional manager for us, um, still works for us here in Minnesota, and he actually prepares the pancakes, which is a fun. <laughs> I love it. So, so there's a whole bunch of us that were part of the Embers team. I mean, of course, the vast majority of the company were not Embers employees, mm-hmm. but um, it's really awesome and to still how, have these connection points. How many of, of your clients, and you're talking about big companies and national brands, how many of them know the history of, of how? Very few. Okay. Very few. I mean, it, it, and they it, will it, after they listen to this podcast. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> no, it was, it's, it's, I would call kind of decreasingly relevant because as we now work with um, a younger generation who doesn't have the familiarity of Embers anyway, mm-hmm. and then we have the privilege of supporting some of the best brands in the world, it's just not as interesting to them. What is interesting, though, when you think about, okay, what, what did we learn from those, that sort of that mode of entrepreneurialism, crisis? creativity. It's this, it's this mash of true sort of creative thinking, because we're forced to be creative, of kind of immediacy. Like in those days, when you can't work on a weekend and you think if you're losing a half a million dollars a month, think how much you're losing in a day. So in those days, days when you can't impact what you're losing, we're not comfortable. So today, that's reflected in the immediacy of our culture. 
right? I mean, we're very immediate. You know, mm-hmm. if we can do it today, we want to do it today. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very earnest. We're we're like crazily brutally honest. In other words, when as a company, as a company, as a it's you know we have we in our company we we we. Many companies have a kind of a, a, a vision statement or a mission statement. We reflect it at the pace at which we move even today, and we move at the speed of light. And I think most would say that, but we have we continue to shock people when they join Algeo and they, they see just how quickly we do move. So we thought, what what is it that we can rally around on a regular basis that even as there's a lot of moving parts every day in our business, that something that keeps us grounded? So we created a set of values and put them into an acronym that we call CORE, C-O-R-E. And it stands for Collaborative objective, responsive, and earnest. We can't, literally, we have to, we, to be successful in our industry, you, you have to collaborate both internally and externally. You, we have to be objective. This, is no, this notion of being br- brutally honest, if we sugarcoat stuff or we're not honest with ourselves or certainly honest with our clients, we'll never build great relationships externally. Um, we're hyper-responsive because not every day is going to be a good day, but if our clients and in our own cohorts, you know, our employees know that we're going to be very responsive to one another, it makes a huge difference. And then earnest. We just flat out care. We care not so much about nine to five. We care about our days, how we spend our days, what's most important to us. And of course, it's different for everybody in, mm-hmm. within Algeo, but it's those set of values that kind of drive how how we've, you know, drive the culture of the business. And now, all these years later, we have like Core Lore and Core More, and we have Core Roar, which is our internal appreciation program. So there's a lot of really fun things we're doing with it. How many employees do you have? Well, af- so we had over 300. We have just less than 200 right now, but we're at, you know, we're growing again. So. Since spinning off the division. It's, since spinning off the division, correct. Where do you spend your time? What's your typical day? Uh, I spend a ton of time on um, areas of kind of hyper growth and then areas of um, need. You know, so we, the good, we, have, we, have, we have extraordinary tenure in our company. We are so fortunate to have – our team has been together. It's, you, you, we referenced a couple from members. But those that have joined us in the last decade or so, even 15 years ago, I mean, our head of – our chief product person has been with us for 16 years. Our head of tech has been with us for over a decade. Um, and the list literally goes on. So what that – the way that that translates is, is operationally, um, our team takes great – care of our current clients, of the current sort of operations. And what it does is it allows me to go and help grow where we can grow and, and address challenges or other sorts of opportunities that may not be growth-related, but that need need attention. Where is the opportunity right now? What do you have your eye on? So we, we with the fintech business, the, you know, is a huge opportunity because there's so much activity right now in, what, in, in payments linking. You think of what Apple is doing and what Amazon is doing, and you read a lot about what Visa and, and Master Carter doing, and and then all the processors and all the banks. So there's a lot, and, and even look. At the, I think about locally what U.S. Bank is doing in terms of the digital footprint of of the branch experience. There's a lot of motion right now in terms of payments linking. So that's a hyper growth business for us, and we we see it is both defensible in terms of um, barriers to entry and um, crazy growth uh, in terms because it amplifies. It doesn't actually disrupt the industry. Are you thinking about when you're thinking about things like that? You're are you thinking about the consumer? I mean, is that where you start? How do we make this experience better for the consumer? Are you thinking about the business? What, what? It, 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 everything begins and ends with the consumer from our perspective. So um, if, if it's not going to, I mean, we, we actually have a very specific philosophy that we don't white paper and we don't actually share that much, but I'm going to share it with you <laughs> um, uh, that we've developed over the years. Because if you think about a number of our clients, we've been working with some of these big enterprise 
clients and solutions long before even the invention of the iPhone, right? Mm. So what is it that, that helps us to maintain you know, relevance? There's three things in terms of our philosophy pillars. The first is we look at the individual benefit, and we focus heavily on, on both the, the economic or the financial benefit and the experiential benefit. How, do, how can that person benefit emotionally? And that's really, you hear a lot of that today, but when you think about, I mean, meaning, truly, meaning is the new currency of engagement from our perspective. So the more meaning you can build into even a redemption transaction, uh, the more impactful you're going to have. So there's a lot of focus on the emotional part of the individual benefit. Second thing we focus on is what we call group effect or group validation. And that is, it's very different than what some would call social sharing. Group effect is if we're trying to drive a certain behavior with an individual, how can we see or help that individual see others like him or her doing the same thing? Right, And the more that we can enable that within a solution, the more likely that solution will succeed. So group effect is the, th- is the second one. And the third one is core values. What are the co- if we're in a, if we're, for example, we do a fair amount now in social entrepreneurship, what are the core values of a, of a new entrepreneurial-driven organization? Or if we're doing a bunch in the employee sector, what are the core values of the, that organization? The most important thing is we take those values and we try to bring them to life in the solution itself. What we found is when we nailed those three pillars, our programs just work. And then as the mega trends evolved, you know, these mega trends around immediacy and proximity and, um, you know, um, you know, social, sociability, measure, measurability, all these trends are going to continue to evolve. And that, but they sit on top of this kind of core philosophy. So if we can maintain the philosophy and then, and then evolve with these trends, we've found ways to be very successful. Did your father live to see much of what Agio has become? Did you have that name? We had the name. Okay. Yeah. He, he, so he, it, it's been. Uh, it was December of two thousand and seven, and unfortunately, it was sudden. But, um, but the good. I think the the the, the extraordinary part of that was that um, he never. You know, he, as I mentioned earlier, he never thought he could retire. In fact. Never thought he could retire. And when he, when we finally got to a point where I said, Dad, you can step back. We're going to be okay. And you should still have an office here. Come in whenever you want. Here's the role if you want it. Um, but go take some time. Go away for a few weeks to, to Arizona. And so mm-hmm. so he went away for that first year. He said, well, I'm just, we'll just run a place for four weeks. So they went away for four weeks, fell in love, and came back like four months later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just before he left, because he didn't think he could re- retire, uh, you know, Kieran Folliard. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had back in those days, he owned the local. We had a surprise retirement. We, we call it no. My dad's name was Henry. We call it, we called it no retirement for Henry. <laughs> so we had a surprise no retirement for Henry party. Mm-hmm. Kieran greeted us at the door, and then we had a ton of people uh, in in the in the space and back, and we walked him back, and it was a big. It was really fun. So it was. So the last five years of his life were extraordinary in that he. He found a new, as much as he loved work, his whole life, he really to the core loved work. Um, the pressure became a lot in those days sure. of crisis. He found a whole new way to love life. And that's to this day very, very rewarding for my whole family. And what did he think about what you were doing? Oh, he was loving it. I mean, he, you know, it's, it, he loved it for all the right reasons. He just wants to see, you know, he wants to see his children succeed, period. So that's his primary 
you know, like, and then, and then he saw so many of the Embers folks and his legacy and most importantly, the culture, like he is such a, he was a person of extraordinary integrity, extraordinary relationship. Um, he, he was human to the core. And, uh, and so that part of him has lived on it, I hope, in everything that we do today. So he, he was thrilled for, I think, the business. He was thrilled for his family. And he was thrilled in that so many of his characteristics live to this day in the business. Do you, how often in the course of your day and running this multi-million dollar enterprise, which is nothing like what you stepped into when you quit the law firm years ago, how often do you stop and just go, this is this is wild. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> it's it, it, when you think about the inflection points that get you to where you are today, um, you know, one of which was I, so I went to law school at Stanford. I, I met a, a, a one of someone who became one of my closest friends. His name is Juan Sabater. Juan today co-chairs a company with me. We're business partners. And Juan took a very different path out of law school than I did. He went to one of the biggest firms in the world, went to Goldman Sachs for many years, was deputy CEO of the firm at one point. And when we reconnected in the, you know, around 0405, he was looking to make a change. And, um, but we were just getting Algeo going. In fact, I, I always joke with him. I said, I think you're probably doing more in income than we're doing in revenue. You know? <laughs> so we, but we began working together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so with Juan, and, and, and to, to this day, Juan does a fair amount of private equity. Um, with a firm out of Chicago, including many of the Elon Musk businesses, which has been fascinating just to see from the outside. Um, But what you learn during the course of that time is you learn an extraordinary appreciation for what you and your team have done. You learn, uh, and I say this all the time, that the downfall of a magician is belief in his or her own magic. There ain't no magic to this stuff. You just got to keep pounding it out every day. And there's going to, you hope you have more good days than bad days and you hope you you can make your you know your 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 bad days better and your better days great um, but there is no magic to this stuff and so as you reflect on still having as I mentioned earlier the very first client we had and now literally hundreds of others some of which are leading brands in the world it's it's an extraordinary privilege and the second we don't bring that humility to what we're doing is is the moment we start to slip in terms of the business so it's it's I feel I feel so privileged truly and so fortunate to have the team that we have, to have the business partner and the, just the, the overall um, to, to look at what we've built and, uh, and hang on t- as tight as we can to what we have and then in the meantime continue to grow. Yeah, it's an amazing story, David. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. We really appreciate it. The company is Augio. You can look it up and who knows, maybe you'll uh, be doing business with them one day. Uh, stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thanks, David. Thank you. Wow, I'm still trying to process the shift from burgers to fintech. What can we learn about David's story? How do you execute a major pivot in business? Well, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Dan McLaughlin is a faculty member in the Operations and Supply Chain Management Department at Opus. And he's also a former restaurant owner and a former band member who remembers eating the M Burger What at 2 o'clock in the morning? We did. We did. My band was loved it. We'd come in. At those days, it was hard to find something open that. Amber's was always open. They right. had great food. You'd finish a gig. Yep. You'd go get a burger. Right. Yep. And it was at great. Ambers. Yep. So I'm still a big fan of Amber's. I'm glad there's still one left. That's, <laughs> that's right. So, so, Dan, David talked a lot in our interview about 
culture. How do you think culture factors into the the huge change that his company went through? Well, first of all, as I listened to his story, kind of some nightmares came back about me being involved in the restaurant business. And so it's a very difficult business. But I think the thing that was important was that the people were there. They were there for a long time. They basically loved the company, I think. They probably really loved his dad. And so the whole thing was built around the people in the company. And so when they were in trouble, he had to say, hey, we're going to have to go left here. It might work, might not. And they all went, okay, let's go left. And so mm-hmm. that's kind they of exciting. They were along for the ride. They were along, and they were they were devoted, and they learned probably had to learn new skills, and they did what they needed to do. And so it's kind of amazing to think about that transition kind of from the restaurant business and then into the supplying to restaurant and then into the loyalty programs. And all of a sudden, now they're into fintech. And so, and I'm sure they're doing great. Sounds mm-hmm. like they're doing great. Uh, but, I mean, it's just such an enormous change from what the company was. But you think it all comes back to the people. Right. And it also comes back to a little bit of the change in how you think about making plans. So we think in the college business about project management with steps, which is called waterfall planning, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. There's another technology called Agile that comes out of the software injury, where you're just kind of trying things and trying things. And that works pretty well. And this was a classic example of Agile, where they tried a bunch of stuff and they moved into fintech. And I bet five, seven years, they'll be in something else because they're hmm. so agile. So I think that's a pretty exciting company. Thank you, Dan McLaughlin. Thanks for being here. And thanks to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, tell a friend about us too. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Allison Kaplan. On behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Mm-hmm.